First Samuel chapter 20 this evening. That's right, we're not perfect, but when we prove it, people get irritated. <laughs> How does that work? Hated for nothing, that's what we're going to consider this evening. Brief review of the previous chapter, 1 Samuel 19, with Saul again threw a spear at David to kill him and did not succeed, of course. Then he sent assassins to execute David in his own home. David flees, of course, to Samuel, where the school of the prophets was located. And at that time, David wrote the 59th Psalm while he is there hiding out with Samuel. And just a brief look at that 59th Psalm, David wrote, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. And he goes on to talk about uh, his desire that God would deliver him. Remembering the whole time he did nothing to deserve this. Actually, they should have pinned more medals on David. And so there is David singing himself out of his problem by faith. The just shall live by faith. But the mere fact that he rejoiced in God did not deliver him from the problem for a long time. In fact, this problem intensified. So here is David unknowingly contributing to the canon of Scripture. And his problem is going to get worse. Well, that was true of the apostles, was it not? Their epistles they wrote. Most of them knowing that they were going to die the death of a martyr. Well, Saul found out that David is there with Samuel. And Saul doesn't care that he's, David is in church. He's going to kill him there anyway. And so, of course, he stalks David to the school of the prophets. But the spirit overruled and overwhelmed Saul. And that stalled him long enough for David to escape. Apparently, David doubled back to Gibeah, where Saul is from, where likely Jonathan had his own uh, plot of land. And there David is going to meet up with Jonathan, his friend. And two outstanding things about these two men is they loved God. They loved each other. And they were not willing to trade against each other for family or anybody else. And that will come out in this chapter. I might not comment on it. You can, you'll see it yourself. So let's look now at the first verse. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah. And went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Every outward circumstance of David's life at this time seemed to insist that God's promises were a lie. That God was anointed David to be king. David's saying, he's going to kill me. I'm not, the promise is not going to be fulfilled. David fled to Naoth and Ramah. He felt, surely I'll be safe with Samuel. The presence of God is there. That didn't work. Not as he had planned it to work. It worked, but not as he thought it would. And this, again, is the story of a man for whom God has this, we can say, infinite plan. In his case, because Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to be directly connected to the offspring of David, which he has none at this point. There are no children 
yet for the line of Messiah to start. The way of the Lord is the way of struggle. We lose sight of that very quickly, especially when the pressure's on. Jesus warned us in many ways. I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. He did not say, I send you into the wolf den. But he says, I send you out there where the wolves are. And then he says, he also says this, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's a rough road. You've got to squeeze in. So David here is talking to Jonathan, the killer to be, the son of the killer to be, Saul. And he says, what have I done? What is my iniquity? What is the sin before my father that he wants to kill me? What do I do to deserve this? Of course, we know the answer. You're, David, you hate it for nothing. Well, the reason was, of course, that Saul was just so self-absorbed that he hated anybody who dared cast a shadow on his self-esteem. Saul thought the universe revolved around him, and we have a problem with it. Who thinks this way? There are people that think this way. We'll cover the more of that, too. But Jonathan, of course, is not ready to admit this. He's still one of the people ignoring the elephant in the room. No one wants to say, he's out of his mind with the devil. That's why. No one wants to, oh, you know, just Saul. Today, they'd slap all sorts of titles. Oh, he's got this and disorder and that one, but they wouldn't fix any of it. They'd just slap him with these titles. David wants it fixed. Imagine yourself in David's place. Few of us are hated so intensely by somebody with enough power to do us much harm for so long. And yet God says, I want this written down, I want it preserved, and I want my people to know the story. And if they know the story, they'll know what to, to do with this kind of information. An opportunity presents itself. In verse 2, so Jonathan said to him, by no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. Still naive. I mean, he's a good man. But that's, that's his shortcoming. You see, just it, the hope springs eternal. He doesn't want to admit this. He doesn't like it. And it's hard to think straight when you don't like something. We call it being biased, being prejudiced in your processing and thought. I don't want it to be true, so I don't believe it. And so we don't fault him for it, we just notice it. It did prove to be true that David would not die, as you shall not die, but not as Jonathan understood the story. Uh, Jonathan really wanted Saul's promises, his father's promises to him, that he'd leave David alone back in chapter 19, verse 6. He, really, he still held out hope for this. And again, we may struggle to believe that someone is as evil as they truly are, because we don't want them to be. We may love them, we may just like them, or we may just be very uncomfortable with the thought that a human being could be a psycho. That's what Saul was. Because we can't see ourselves behaving this way. So we project, okay, if I'm not going to do something that stupid, then I can't believe that, that my dad would, would do this. And so they downsize the evil 
that is right in front of them. I mean, he throws a spear at David. What do you say? Well, you know, if he really wanted to get you, David, he would have. No, he just missed me. And that's what they do. They, they try to explain it away. And what do you answer? You know, then you didn't get into a disagreement. You know, I, I say he missed. You say he wasn't trying to kill me. You weren't the target. But Jonathan's going to be the target. And he'll have a different tune to sing after that. It never helps matters to downsize the evil in others. It, it doesn't help anybody. Um, you know, you, you, you see this... Uh, Someone who maybe have a substance abuse problem and you, you don't want to just downsize and give, let them go behind, get behind the steering wheel. Or fly your plane. Or a host of other things. Sometimes we have to force ourselves to see what we're looking at. We have to force ourselves. Turn, turn your head, look at the elephant. What is that over there? He says in verse 2, Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. Jonathan is delusional right now. Well, not really. He, he believes this. He, he, he believes it's true that his father confides in him. We know Saul. That sinister fool only would confide if it would get him something. He already, you know, he doesn't care anything about his daughter, his son, anybody. The record is very clear. And so Jonathan is applying his noble characteristics and his understanding of his relationship with his father. It is a mistake in this case. With another man, it could be true. Not with this one. He is being led by what he wants things to be and not how they are. And yet he's still being cautious enough to meet with David privately. Verse 3. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, Yahweh, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. This is intense. This isn't just, you know, being picked on on social media. What do you do if you're being picked on on social media? I just, you know, who cares? You don't define who I am. God does. I don't need you to approve of me how I dress. Well, some of you might need. No, kidding. You don't need that. If you live life as a popularity contest, you're going to be miserable. Uh, you're going to be a little miserable anyway. Don't add to it. Find out who you are. It's called identity. We identify with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well... Anyway, the oath uh, is made. Then David took an oath again, saying, by that he means he, he, he's bringing God into this. It's a serious matter. The Lord never loses, never goes out of sight with these two men. It's not like, you know what, we got this, God. No, the whole time God is centered to how these two men are going to work this big problem out. Because they're what we would call tight. They're very close men. We don't read about their exploits together. They could have been on the battlefield together because we know David had gone out and fought with the Philistines. Well, Jonathan wasn't home playing marbles while that was all happening. So these men, are, they have a bond. And it was built initially on the battlefield, that duel between David and Goliath, and it expanded. And this section, David's telling the story. At some point, David tells someone these things. And Jonathan may have contributed and someone puts it together for us, the Holy Spirit overseeing the whole process. But my point is, David knew how loved he was by Jonathan, and he knew that Jonathan knew how, how much he loved him back. 
to mutual love. When love gets out of balance, it's not as much fun. But when it's mutual, then it's, then it's something very, very special. Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. Now, these men are talking. I don't know if David was animated. or I don't think his hands are in back. Jonathan, you know now, your father. I don't think the Visine commercial guy. Uh, but but I, I think he's just letting him know very gently that you know your dad knows we're friends. He's not going to come out and, and, and do it that way, Jonathan. Wake up. Saul caused this horrible drama, which otherwise would have been a great friendship. He ruins it. He ruined everything he touched, every single thing he touched. And a man like Abner didn't figure it out probably ever. He, he will meet up with Joab, and that will be the end of him much later. But David is aware of Jonathan's gullibility here with concerning his, his dad and Saul's cover-up and thirst for blood. And uh, many a murderer has been good to those whom they choose to be good to while they kill other people. And uh, this is the story here. The single word for that is nepotism. A nepotist shows great favor to the people of his choice, usually family, and great uh, wrath towards the enemies or, or, or objects of their abuse. He continues, but truly, here in verse 3, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Tell you an outstanding thing about Jonathan when he finds out all this about his dad. He honors his mother and father. He never says, My dad is a kook. He knows he's going to know it, but he just suppresses it. It's not his role, it's not for him to do. And it's quite honorable uh, that just uh, Jonathan, this great character in Scripture, uh, but here again in verse 4, truly as a, the Yahweh lives. And as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. Uh, so David's reply to Jonathan's naivete is, um, he's going to kill me. If you give him the chance, I'm dead as soon as possible. And uh, David is going to struggle to keep his eyes on Yahweh for the next few years. He's probably in his early 20s right now, very early 20s. And as I mentioned, Psalm 59 records something about his struggle Verse 4, so Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. I think there's great passion in this. David, you know, I don't see it this way, but whatever you tell, just tell me what you want. And, and if I can do that, I'm going to do that. This is a friend. And friends bring out the best in each other. And that's how you know you've got a good friend. Not only because you feel good, uh, having a good time. But they bring out the best. And in Christianity, they bring out the righteousness in you. They don't, they don't tarnish the righteous. They bring it out. They make you want to love the Lord and obey the Lord. What good is loving the Lord if you don't plan to obey Him? That's why we struggle when we disobey God. But yet He's always forgiving. I know you messed up again. That's okay. I mean, when you first come to Christ, and if you're going to live another 500 years, God would say, I know you're going to mess up for 500 years' worth, but I'm going to love you every step of the way. And there are going to be times where you won't love yourself because of your sin. But I'll love you. 
Well, you're going to find a bargain like that anywhere else. That kind of arrangement of friendship between God and man is made in heaven, not China. Oh, that would be the White House. Oh, excuse me. Anyway, verse 5. The current White House, I should add. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. (laughs) Verse 5. David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. Uh, You know, no matter how old you get, you just feel childish sometimes. You know, the whole new moon thing. What do they do with the old one? Um, Anyway, (laughs) the new moon is the beginning of the Jewish month. And... Uh, you know, there's, there's no moon. <laughs> Invisible. It's hidden. But they have a lunar ca- calendar, and it is accompanied by a festival. This goes back to Numbers chapter 10. We have so much information, we have to skip over that reading of it. But Numbers 10.10 10 is one place where you can find the authority for this. And it seems to have uh, just expanded to the uh, family unit, where this became a time of festival for families. It was used for Saul and his staff at his palace. And it was, um, you know, you were expected to be there. And just in the military today, you cannot just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to miss formation. <laughs> you better not. <laughs> you better be there. And you have to get permission to miss these things because you are an indentured slave. You have signed yourself to be a servant on whatever the contract is. Well, David was indentured, but... It was an endless guy. He couldn't terminate. It was till death. So he says and here in verse 5, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. He means I, I have to be make these staff meals, the staff dinner at the new moon. I can miss all the other days of the month, but I, this is uh, compulsory. I have to be there. He says, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And uh, this would be the second day of the month, the day that they're talking, the day of the new moon, and then the, the day after that, and that's in the story. It, you, you, you can go crazy trying to make all of these things reconcile. You will. You can most of the time, but they're very difficult because you've got to remember so many things. They're going to be two meals. And how does that happen? I thought it was just the celebration of the new moon. Well, there's sundown to sundown. So that's where you get the two meals in the one-day span. I mean, it's just... Uh, You you have to remember little things like that for it to make sense. Anyway, uh, I don't care how many times you go through the scripture, it is always a lot there. It is never, I got this one. Uh, Well, it is when you, you know, the Lord gives it to you for an application. But as a student, it's it's just no bottom to it. Verse 6, if your father misses me at all, Then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And so the family, evidently, David's family, uh, had a new moon festival yearly uh, that coincided with the staff meeting. And David is saying, I'm going to go to that dinner with my family, and that will be my alibi. No evidence that David is, is lying to cover, cover it up. He's not telling the whole story, nor is he obligated to, to tell the whole story. Uh, you don't either. You don't tell the whole story. 
because if you did, you'd go down to the courthouse routinely and tell them you were speeding. (laughs) That was me. I went 56 and a 55. Some of you, I've noticed. (laughs) As I passed you. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) You know of a selfie stick, you want to give some people an accelerator stick. Where you just, here, push this, shove this on the accelerator. Okay, I'm having fun. Somebody's like, I'm a slow driver. I know, just stay to the side, the shoulder of the road. <laughs> okay. All right, let's finish this here. Um, verse 7. If he says, well, let me pause there. You younger Christians, you newer drivers, I am not encouraging you to speed. I am encouraging you to stay out of my way. It's not tricky. (laughs) Uh, And I don't speed. I just go faster than what they say I should. Verse 7. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. David is going, this ain't going to happen. But Jonathan, I got to say it to you because you're just dense in the head. And this is a serious problem. It's a serious problem to be hunted for your life and your best friend doesn't believe it. It's a big problem. He says, but if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Well, Saul is going to be very angry at being denied the chance to slaughter David at the meal, at the sacrificial meal. David's supposed to be the sacrifice, according to Saul. Who cares about what God wants? I want to kill him. And so David needed Jonathan to see this. And he knew David would play music and he probably would glance up and see Saul glaring at him with hatred, a dirty look with daggers. And he knew he was hated by this point and he had given up on Saul was irretrievable. There was no way to get him back. And he never does come back. And as far as we know, whatever happens between him and God is beyond us. But between man and his service of Towards God and man, we have the full story. Why is it that victims of gross wrongs and the circumstances that they have to suffer are so easily misunderstood even by loved ones? Well, why is it? You know, you, something happens to you. Some, they broke into my car. Well, you shouldn't have parked it there. <laughs> why, why am I the victim? I mean, the villain. I'm the victim here. I mean, it's the difference, you know, if you go in a bad neighborhood with cash hanging out your pockets and you get mugged. Well, that's different. But to be a genuine victim and have people say, well, you must have done something wrong. I mean, I'm like that a little bit. If the washing machine acts up or something, what'd you do? <laughs> it just can't be the machine. It has to be you. Uh, but on a larger scale, this is... As you read the story, this is some of what's going on here and part of the lesson. Someone clearly doing you wrong while others make excuses for the run that's doing the wrong. Why? Why doesn't Jonathan say, listen, I saw him with that spear thing in you. I know he hates you. I've seen him glaring at you with that look. I know he hates you. Why didn't he just do that and skip this whole step? Because humans aren't that way. We are very complex in the positive and in the negative. And that's why people, you know, what is the meaning of life? Why do I do what I do? Let's sit down and talk about me for an hour. God says, okay, come to church. Come to Calvary Chapel. You get a whole hour of talking about you in my presence. 
just by opening the word of God. Verse 8, Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant with Yahweh with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? And David, let's get it over with. And you know, when you're, when you're the victim, sometimes you begin to second guess yourself. Maybe I did something to deserve this. What, what did I do? Nothing. Again, David, you're hated for absolutely nothing by this man. And most people can't understand it because it has not happened to them. They lack discernment and perception. They can't look at this and say, what is really happening here? Or even ask God, show me what is going on. If you're going to be used more and more as a Christian, you, you want those skills to be able to perceive, to know what's truly going on as best you can. And so... Verse 9, but Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then I would, uh, would I not tell you? In other words, I would tell you, Jonathan, wake up, wake up. It's not, it's not as happy as you think it is there in Gibeah. Verse 10, David said to Jonathan, who will tell me or what if your father answers you roughly? So they're trying to figure out a plan. How are they going to verify or validate David's, uh, David's fears? And he's looking for answers from Jonathan about notifying him about how this is going to do. Again, David has no illusions about Saul's many attempts to murder him. Just everybody else does. And, uh, man, I would not want to be David in this situation. But over the years, I've come across them. I've come across people who no one else understands why they are being attacked. Um, and in, in time, most some you lose touch with, but others, they, they do work out for the, for the righteous. And, uh, you know, all David wanted to do was slay the giant and serve his king in the name of Yahweh. And that was stripped from him by one fool because of his... Devotion to self. Saul's devotion to him. He was devout about himself. Imagine living this way. What a hard way to live. To always want to be pleased. And always want to be happy. And always want to be exalted. Who wants to live that way? I don't want to live that way. Uh, I don't want to live the hard way. But if, if there were a room full of Saul's, I'd be better off without them. Verse 11. And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So both of them went into the field. Now, this take them away from the ears of others. <clears throat> there were servants around. Verse 12, Then Jonathan said to David, Yahweh God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow on the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you. In other words, if I find out that my dad, my dad is actually loves you and doesn't want to hurt you. I, I, you. Be sure, David, I'm going to get that information to you. I'm not going to withhold it. I'm just going to settle this as quickly as we can. Verse 13. May Yahweh do so and much more to Jonathan. A bit dramatic. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And... Yahweh 
be with you as he has been with my father. Um, Jonathan, it does please your dad to do evil to me. Where he says, and Yahweh be with you as he was with my father. Well, God was with Saul, called him to the throne and gave him early victories. And Saul threw it away. And the spirit was given to David to be king. And David is being shaped into uh, being the ruler that he will be. Verse 14. And you shall not only show me kindness of Yahweh while I still live, that I may not die. Jonathan's saying, I'm risking my life by siding you to begin with. And when you do become ruler, don't uh, purge the house of Saul, he being one of them, which was the custom of the kings. That's all in this. It's come out a little bit more, verse 15. But you should not cut off my kindness from my house forever. No, not when Yahweh has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So there it is. Jonathan knew that God's hand was on David. It is coming out more and more in the kingdom that John, David is going to succeed and he is going to be the ruler. Jonathan is not expecting to die with his demonized father on Mount Gilboa. He is expecting to live a long life, have children and grandchildren, and be David's friend and not be executed by David. This is what he's talking to David about. And they've brought Yahweh into this because that's how they did business, rightfully so. God was in all of their thoughts. And uh, Saul, of course, is insane with efforts to stop this friendship between these two men. Abigail would later confirm that David would be king. 1 Samuel 25, she says, Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. This is uh, some time later. We don't know exactly how much time, but some time. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. She's pretty articulate. It's poetic. She's bringing into David's future, David's past. God is going to sling out your enemies like you put that sling on that giant. That's what she's saying to him. And she's doing this under the, you know, David's got this army in back of him, and she's got a donkey with raisins and bread. And uh, she's just cool as a cucumber. Every chance I get to talk about Abigail, I take. She is by far my favorite woman in in all the Bible. Um, You don't have to agree with that. What, when we get to Abigail, I'm going to hammer it yet again. So I'm just prophetic like that. And it shall come to pass, she continues to say, When Yahweh has done for my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. So the word was getting out. And Jonathan had glimpses of it. Saul may have. I don't think Saul had enough of it yet. He may have had. He did certainly have some. Uh, No question. Uh, Anyway, uh, David remembered Jonathan telling him this because David is giving us this information. And that ancient practice of killing anyone who is perceived a threat to the throne is what uh, David and Jonathan are hammering out here in their own friendly way. And 
this is the case with Adonijah. When David was still alive, uh, Solomon was not yet crowned. Adonijah crowned himself. He was Absalom's brother. It seems as though rebellion ran in that side of David's uh, harem. Anyway, uh, Solomon, quickly David's men rallied to Solomon's support. And they got Solomon crowned by David. And Solomon warned Adonijah, don't do this again. But he did. And because it meant that uh, he was going to kill Solomon. And that's what was told. Solomon and Bathsheba, if you do not go in and tell the king what is going on, they're going to kill you and Solomon. So you go tell David what's happening, and I'll come in right behind you. And on the strength of two witnesses, the king will make, he will make a decision, uh, the right decision. And that is just what happened. So my point for bringing this up is to say that everybody knew if you had a rival to your throne, you would kill them. And Jonathan is saying, David, I don't want you to kill my family. I'm not going to be a, a problem. This is why Herod killed the innocents in Bethlehem. David will make good on this because he will elevate Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, uh, to his uh, position of honor in David's kingdom. And Mephibosheth, the man with the difficult name to pronounce, uh, he's quite a hero. And he gets a, he gets a bad deal. He gets a tough life. Uh, the whole life is kind of messed up. But we'll get to that when we get to Second Samuel. He says here in the bottom of verse 15, Not when Yahweh has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Uh, he's saying God is going to cut off all, your, all of your enemies. That includes Saul. He knows it's going to go well with David, but not yet. Who would I be in the story? The hero. Very simple. We all have to ask ourselves, who would I be in this story? Who wants to be Saul? Raise your hand. Verse 16. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let Yahweh require it at the hand of David's enemies. And uh, this, uh, this is something important here. What, what it all comes down to, reinforcing their loyalties, their friendship. Jonathan is caught in the middle. David is caught at the bottom. And 100% of the cause is one psycho, Saul. May we not allow a rift between two other people to be the reason why we're no longer loyal to where we need to be loyal. So that's the lesson from Jonathan. Look, I know he's messed up. I'm not that way. No, I cannot betray him. But I don't have to betray you either. And he's just quite honorable. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Here's Paul's recipe for dealing with people who cause a rift in the, in the church or amongst friends. He says, now I urge you, brethren, Romans 16, 17, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Uh, sound wisdom. Some don't learn to. They, they think that they can, well, you know, they just need, a, just need a little talking to. It's like 50 people have talked to them, and 50 people have been divided by them. Uh, fools go in where angels fear to tread. Verse 17, Now Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Their friendship, menaced by one influencer that Saul, again, but this friendship is preserved by God because God is central to their friendship. Very simple. You want to have a good friendship? Let God truly be center to it. 
The deeper friendships are made in Christ, and they're very hard to preserve over the years. They're very hard to preserve. For he loved him, verse 17 still, as he loved his own soul. David knew he was loved. Too bad that Saul had no such love to give to anybody else. It's, it's a shame that here's a man that people adored. He was head and shoulders above everyone. He had all these chances, and he didn't, he didn't love anybody. He didn't love Samuel. Uh, and, and that's usually a pastor. Again, fiddler on the roof. You, you like the scene where they're talking about, you know, you've got the butcher and this person, and our beloved rabbi. Because to them, uh, their, their faith is central to their existence. And that's a right way to go about it. Unfortunately, it was Judaism and tradition and not Scripture. So instead of saying tradition, it should have been Scripture. <laughs> that's, you know, what the cry should have been. So uh, here, he is loved. Um, Saul hoarded love. Any love coming into Saul, he kept it. And it festered in there. He's the Dead Sea. No love coming out of him. Just love me. Give me attention. Give me what I want. And Jonathan never allowed the hatred of his father and the delusions of his father to creep into his own heart. Quite honorable, again, uh, of, of Jonathan. Because a lot of people would, be, they would succumb to that. You hate David, I hate David. You're my dad, I'm siding with you. I don't care if you're wrong before God. You're family. Uh, yeah, well, I belong to another family whose inheritance is uh, from the throne of God. And the allegiance first is to the Lord. And that should not upset people. I don't know why people get upset by that. It, it sounds, they make feel like uh, that, what, are you going to come and burn down their house now? <laughs> You're the enemy? Because you love God? This is, the world treats us that way. The world is infuriated that we dare love God more than love them. And uh, that's a tough cookie for them. But they're going to have to eat it. Verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when, verse 19, you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone of Izel. Um, the day of the new moon, we've, we've covered that. Uh, not restricting him to 72 hours when they say three days, not 72 hours, but they're going from sunup to sundown. It simplified everything. They didn't have a wall calendar or, or a watch for time. The sunup, the sundown, that pretty much set the rhythm for how they, 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 they did business. And what he says, the place where you hid on the day of the deed, a bit obscure. I wish Jonathan, well, David telling the story. We like, I like to think it's David because Jonathan did not live to tell the story. David did. Um, is he referring to the time when he first fled Saul or the assassins? I don't know. None of the commentators, I mean, I checked like 20 or 30 of them. They're all either silent on it or not really a, the answer that I'm comfortable with. <clears throat> anyway, and it's not a big thing. So I've spent three minutes uh, <laughs> discussing about an obscure verse that has nothing really to do with anything. Oh, my doctrine's going to fall apart. I don't know where David is and why. Did I look goofy saying that? <laughs> no, you know what? You're looking goofy when you stepped up there. Don't worry about it. It was a nice change. The place where you hid on the day of the deed, moving down to verse 20. 
Then I will shoot three arrows on the side as though I shot at a target. Interesting. One arrow for each of them. David, Saul, and Jonathan. I don't think that's what he meant, but, you know, you see that when you study too hard. Verse 21. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then, as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. So the prearranged signal. I'm going to take a lad out and I'm going to fire three arrows. If I tell the lad, go get the arrows and bring them back. David, it's all good. David is going, it ain't going to happen. Uh, Verse 22. But... If I say to you, to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for Yahweh has sent you away. Words that David does not want to hear, but he's going to hear them and he knows it. He's got it. He knows it. David knows this is a nightmare. Remember, we, I don't know, chapter 18, the nightmare begins. And it is it's ongoing. Verse 23 uh, And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, Yahweh be between you and me. So he's not letting it go, the oath. Yahweh is central to everything these two men are doing. And so they're keeping it right up in front. And so uh, David telling the story is is, is the one emphasizing this. You know, we, we had this agreement before God. And both of us were committed to making sure we held up our end of the covenant. And, and they did. Verse 24, Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now, we don't learn about these things so we can use them for evil's sake. Let's make a covenant to do evil. It's a covenant to be obedient to God. Uh, that is important. So David, verse 24, hid in the field. Not immediately. He goes to Bethlehem, and at some point he comes back to the field. Uh, it'd be kind of difficult for him to hang out there uh, in Gibeah an extended period of time without being detected. Anyway, here's Israel's future king hiding like this in the field, waiting, nauseous, you know, all the things that come with him. What does my future hold for me? Where am I going to go? And he's probably, where am I going to go? If I go home, this all kill my family. He's, you know, this is sickening. His entire future hinges upon where that arrow is, is going to remain, either in Jonathan's custody because the lad got it, or in the field somewhere. Verse 25. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Now this, of course, information gets out. But there he is, sitting, Saul's back to the wall. How typical. I don't want anybody to sneak up on him. Like, yeah, who's going to sneak up on you, Saul? You're not that important. Uh, what policies are you making for anybody to protest? Uh, all you, the only policy Saul had is, let's kill David. Good morning, Saul. Let's kill David. <laughs> Golly. Can this story be in my Bible? Is this true? Every word of it. And there are people who have to suffer this in life. So, David's just, anyway, verse 26. Nevertheless... Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean, surely he is unclean. Boy, do they capture the moment. The monster knows the prey is not in the trap. And you can hear him, he's unclean, he's unclean. You're unclean, you're planning to kill someone at a a Yahweh festival. You're the unclean one, you nut. 
<sighs> ceremonially unclean. That's what he's saying. David's unclean, of course. You know, he's, he's not, that's why he's not here. So dark with evil that reason is wasted on this man. He cannot see his own dark heart. He doesn't want to. Fight those thoughts of feeling sorry for him any more than you do for Judas Iscariot because these are his choices. It's not like Saul bumped his head one day and was never the same. He was a mean boy after that. Uh, you know, they, they took his appendix out and they put marbles in there. Um. <laughs> That's from an old movie with Burl Ives. But anyway, verse 27. Uh, <laughs> and it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? Now, he can't, he can't restrain himself. He, he just can't say, Where's David? He can't even say his name. Now he's the son of Jesse. There's so much hatred in this man. Verse 28. So Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. Uh, again, um, there's no way to escape this evil. No matter what, he could say, David died. Saul would say, go dig him up, because i got to kill him. That's how messed up he is. Now, if you're listening to me say this, you might say, oh, come on. Well, read the story yourself. Don't stop. I mean, start at chapter... 18, and read all the way to the end of 1 Samuel for yourself, because we still not even warmed up yet. Verse 29, and he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there, and now I have found favor, in, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away to see my brothers, therefore he has not come to the king's table. So that's Jonathan saying, this is what David told me, and that's why he's not here. It's only seven miles from Bethlehem to Gibeah. And uh, failure to side with Saul was viewed as questioning his throne. You do not disagree with this man. You do not even behave as though you didn't like something he said. Um, you know, if Saul wrote you a note and he spelled a word wrong, you don't tell him because he's that uptight. He's so insecure, violently so, and that's what we get with verse 30. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. Why? Because he's depriving him of the chance to murder. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? What are you talking about, you foul mouth? What are you talking about? Why you got to mess with mom? Why does she? Why am I, why am I the, the son of a perverse woman? What did she do to you? Angry, because he can't kill someone in cold blood. Viciously disowning Jonathan is illegitimate. Even true or not, you don't say this kind of stuff. But see, this is how he dominated. This is how he retains power through fear through insults, by putting everybody on defense, by, by belittling those around him. This is who this man was, and there are people like this today. And if you don't think there are, something's wrong with you, because they're out there. In fact, we've got big buildings to hold many of them, with these bars on them. <laughs> and aren't you glad? 
they just need a kind of a, a scooper, like a paddy wagon, <laughs> to go around collecting more of them because they're out there. Anyway, fortunately, they don't seem to huddle in one place till they get to the House of Numbers. That would be the Huskow, the jail. All right. Again, why does he slander Jonathan's mother? What did she do to deserve this? You know, many a child has had good parents, and some children have had bad parents, but why do you have to air the laundry, even if it were true, which it is not? And verse 31. If, could you imagine if this was true? Saul would have killed her three times. Verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Didn't miss a step, did he? Didn't say, well, you know what, you got a good point. Or, you know, yeah, he's, he's with his family, I'm with my family. Family, you know, family's good. Doesn't do any of that. Just bring him to me so I can kill him, please. I know he's your friend. But listen, the throne is more important than what God says. Uh, thou shalt not kill only if, you know, you don't feel like it. How many people come to church to hear the word of God, want to insist that they're Christians, and then step out and violate what they just heard God say to them, and then defend themselves? Listen, you can have people come to counseling, and you can bust them straight out. Say, here's all the proof. You're the problem. And they turn on you even more. Go slander you and go talk about you. Instead of saying, sometimes they repent, sometimes they do. But sometimes they just will, they've made up their mind. They're going to be who they're going to be. And there's no scripture and uh, anybody else that's going to stop them from being who they're going to be. And then one day they die and stand in front of God, who they chose to be. It's a very serious consequence of this thing. It's, it's not a game. Well, uh, I mean... <laughs> It would be kind of mean, I guess, to put a sign up in hell. Told you it wasn't a game. But it would be too late, you know. Uh, but read the, the Psalm 2. Where the Lord says, I will, I will mock them for, their, for this kind of behavior. Verse 32, And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Big mistake, Jonathan. You don't disagree with Saul. And again, he is irretrievable. And we're not told these things so that we can feel sorry for him. We're told these things to be warned about such characters as this. Uh, if you have a sheltered life, you may not come across somebody like this. But if you're out there, you may. Verse 33, then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Now you're getting it, Jonathan. It had to come to this. Instead of just believing, David, you had to wait till the spear came your way. And, you know, Jesus made no excuses for people who were determined to be wicked. Matthew 25, verse 30, Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It, it is a fact of life that, as horrible as it is, if someone chooses to be evil and harm people, uh, they will be harmed. So anyway, nothing more to say about verse 33 than what we haven't been saying all night. Verse 34, so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food. The second day, 
of the month, for he was grieved for his father because his father had treated him shamefully. Um, the logistics of this are a little tricky, but either way, he dodged the spear. Saul ruined the dinner, and now he has lost his appetite and is awake. Verse 35, awake, he's awakened to David's circumstances. Verse 35, and so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Now the story gets really interesting as far as accepting the realities. You would say the hand that life has dealt you if you were an unbeliever. Verse 36, then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. Well, that's good. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to take the kid out. <laughs> but in my mind, I always picture this cute little boy, you know, running out there with his little sandals on. and he, Oblivious, totally oblivious to the cycle on the throne, to David hiding in the shrubs, to Jonathan's heart breaking. He's totally oblivious. He's innocent. This life is good. I'm out with Jonathan. I'm going to get to retrieve his arrows for him. What an honor. Verse 37, when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out to the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And so uh, David, the righteous fugitive now, that's what he is now. He, he hears this and his heart sinks. It's the dreaded signal of the agreement from verse 22. Uh, there's nothing you can do, lad. The arrow is beyond you. There's nothing you can do, David. This is beyond you. It's beyond me. There's nothing anybody on earth can do for you now, David. That is what this means. Where are you going to go, David? I don't know. I'll always be your friend. I'll always be here. But I can't get you out of this. Jonathan's choice of words stuck with David. And that's why they're recorded and they stick with us. Is not the arrow beyond you. Initially, he uses plural, the arrows, in verse 22. But here, the arrow, David, this is personal. And it's painful. It's a painful reality that David has to face. And there are situations in which we do most for God when we do nothing more. Because there's nothing more that he could do except flee. And then there are other situations where it would be almost criminal to do nothing. And that's what discernment and Walking with the Lord is all about. Uh, verse 38, and Jonathan cried out. Oh, let me pause there. Verse 37, I'm skipping over it, but uh, the, that, that could be a long message with much application. Is not the arrow beyond you. Verse 38, and Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. Uh, the arrows that he gathered were the ones that were Jonathan's equipment. Verse 39, and the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them back to the city. David, as I'm sure a part of him, may have wanted to be that little boy. Just innocent and carefree. There's a story um, from the Civil War of a Confederate soldier on the line about to start marching forward into battle, and he sees this little rabbit running, and he says, run, little rabbit, 
Because if I was a little rabbit, I'd be running too. He wishes he was anywhere else but on that line. Because in those days, you just, you know, go ahead and see if you, if you can survive this. <laughs> Which is horrible. Um, anyway, the, David is not innocent and carefree as that little boy is. Verse 41, as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together. But David more so. You see, we mentioned that David knew he was loved by Jonathan, but David wept more so. He so much, it was an emotional collapse for him. He's just breaking down now. This is it's official. All of his fears are confirmed, and now's the moment he has to, to move out. And uh, it's very, it would have been very moving to watch this take place, these, these two heroes and dear friends torn apart by a ghoul. And it's not what David envisioned when he slew the giant. Certainly anybody that reads perverse homosexuality into this is perverse. Uh, this is chaste. This is honest. This is an Eastern, ancient Eastern custom to show, to kiss each other on the cheek like this. Honest love, goodwill, friendship, and for greetings, farewells, and blessings. When I uh, did my son's wedding, I kissed him on his cheek. And if anybody had said anything perverse, I would have done something other than their cheek. Anyway, because they're out there. They're recruiting. There used to be a time was live and let live, not now. Now they're recruiting people. They're telling them how to do it, how to cause trouble with it, how to stand up and be perverted. Fine. You want to do it, go right ahead. But the day of judgment will come. It will come. And Sodom and Gomorrah stands as a monument of God. I don't like this. It's one thing to struggle with the problem. It's another thing to celebrate it. And if there's a person that struggles with it, I mean, the church is there to help, you know, work to get out of that. God's forgiveness. But if you want to get uppity and all up in God's face, nothing but condemnation. It can be, And that would be the same way for somebody who, you know, um, ate the last cookie. No, that would kind of lighten it up a little bit. Maybe I, I should not do that. I should just leave it as it is. If you want to mess, be not deceived. God is not mocked. That which you sow, you will reap. And if you sow impenitence, unforgiveness, that's the word I'm going to make up for the moment, uh, that's what awaits the guilty. Then Jonathan. Oh, let me say one, one other thing. Is, do we have any youth that can stand up to this generation in their face and tell them to go jump in the lake when it comes to immorality? Do we have any youth with any backbone anymore that can say, as for me in my house, even at my young age, I don't believe that. But I, this is what I do believe. Do, do we have any older Christians? Do we have parents that can stand up to their, to their children or to anybody else and say, no, that's not what God said? Uh, or do we have a bunch of people that just have to find a way to make everybody hold hands and sing their way to hell? Um, you know, people have died for the name of the Lord and his word. Why should we be any different? I mean, trying to take us out with this COVID stuff, causing divisions and strifes and canceling church. 
One, one of the pastors said, that, yeah, they sent spies from the health department. And in their report, they said there were people that were actually hugging and, make, and being friendly with each other and shaking hands. We evil Christians. I mean, just, all right. Verse, we, do, we do verse 42. I blacked out. Here we go. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of Yahweh, saying, may Yahweh be between you and me. And between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. Two men of backbone. And I hope we get pastors and pulpits with backbones. I hope if they come for me. They get a dose of the gospel in their face. Do with me whatever you want to do. But who wants a pastor that just wants to appease the world and their sin? Who wants a Christian brother or sister that just wants to appease? Okay, I feel a sermon coming on. <laughs> I know. Just my goodness. What happened to America? Satan. That's what happened. Well, under the pressure, David flees to the world. Twice he's going to do this. He's going to run to the Philistines above all people. It's going to not go well for him. Uh, where was the God of his Psalms? Close with this. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Let's pray. Our Father... One day we'll be home with you, and there'll be no more sin, and no more struggle, no more criticisms, no more resistance to your holiness. We will awaken your likeness, Lord Jesus, and what a beautiful time that will be. But for now, the task of preaching the gospel, the good news, there are still people to be saved. And may you find us very much involved in just that. May you get us home safely, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.